So as we've journeyed through the book of Acts, and last week we looked at the persecution and death of Stephen, how Stephen chose, shows us that we may not always be able to live a long life, but we can choose to live a deep life, one rooted in faith and relationship with God and love and forgiveness and care for others. And what we hear in chapter 7, verse 58, is that the stoning of Stephen, that Saul was there. And, and this tells us that, that, it had, that this action had Saul's approval. It tells us that, that Saul was a man that his approval mattered. For them to mention that he was there shows that he is a man of authority and power in his time. And so today we're going to look at Saul a little bit deeper. We're going to look at um, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, where it says, While Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, so he's still doing the same thing. He's still attacking the church. He's still persecuting those that are trying to rise against the temple. It says that he went to the high priest and asked him, for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As in, and as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? And so Saul is continuing in his ways of persecution. He's con he's convinced that he is going in the right direction. Do, do you are are you maybe like me sometimes, and you're a little bit directionally challenged? Um, you find yourself going in one direction, only to find out that um, oh, I was supposed to take a left back there, but I took a right. Um, you, you find yourself just kind of getting lost at points in time especially i can remember before gps and before we could pull it up on our phones that, that there were moments in my life where i would find myself going far far out of the way before i realized it and saul finds himself kind of in that uh thought process where he's he's going one way and he's thinking he's going in the correct direction until all of a sudden he's thinking he's doing god's will until all of a sudden there's a flash of light, and God gets in the way. There's, a, there's, for lack of a better way of putting it, a detour sign. God going, nope, turn around. I've got a better way for you to go. God disrupts, God interrupts what Saul believes is his calling. What Saul wants and desires, God says, no. Have you ever been there? Feeling that God is disrupting and interrupting what you desire, what you want. And it's in these moments, and I think that sometimes we, we try to run through them. We try to get through those as fast as we can because cause we don't like when we don't get our way. We kind of throw tantrums sometimes. But those are those moments where maybe we should walk a little bit more slowly, be a little bit more methodical, if you will, and look see if we can find what God is inviting us to. Because God may be inviting us to something new. Imagine being Saul in this moment. 
when, when he finds himself going and persecuting the church and the early Christians in an all-in-one moment, not only is his life completely changed and everything flipped upside down, not only is he knocked off of his high horse, but he is knocked off by the one whom he is persecuting. He's blinded. Because in, in beginning back in verse 6, or in the end of verse 5, in the end of verse 6, it says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul, they stood there speechless, because they heard the sounds, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So Saul collides with God. Saul's wants and desires crash into God's call and purpose. In this moment it changes everything. Now to understand Saul, you need to understand that Saul was born around 5 AD in a Jewish, to a Jewish family in Tarshish. And in about AD 10, it says that he moved to Jerusalem. In about AD 15 to AD 20, somewhere in that time range, he begins his Hebrew studies under Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, now Rabbi Gamaliel was one of the, the higher rabbis in the area, very well respected. And so studying under him, Paul would have had much of the Old Testament scripture memorized. He would have been able to quote it. He, he would have been an expert in Judaism as we, as we hear in Acts uh, 23, verse 6, where we hear uh, Paul speaking of himself. And he, and he says that he is the, of the Pharisee of the Pharisees. It says, when Paul noticed that some were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, he calls out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He's saying, I'm, I'm, the, I'm rooted in this stuff. And I think so often we can find ourselves kind of like Saul, where we're so rooted in knowing stuff that we lose sight of knowing God. Because in Saul's day, if you needed uh, to know where something was in the scriptures, even if you needed to, to understand the Hebrew or the Greek meaning, if you needed it explained to you, if you needed to know how to pray or, or what to pray or when to pray or where to pray, if you needed to understand sacrifices better and you were seeking someone to teach you what to sacrifice, when and how to sacrifice, you would call Saul. Saul was the one the people aspired to be. Saul was the one that, uh, that they thought God was calling them to be. Because Saul presented in a holy manner. But what we see in the story is that, that Saul, while doing what he wanted to do, did not know God. He did not know Jesus Christ. But, but in chapter 9, what we hear is that Saul had enough power. When it says that he went to the high priest, he had enough power that he could not just have access to the high priest, but that he could come demand that he be able to carry out this mass arrest and deportation of the Christians and the early Christians in Damascus. 
where, where he didn't even know who he was going to go get. But he said, if I come across any, can I do it? And they're like, well, yeah, sure. You're Saul. Of course you can. But he doesn't know that he's about to meet his maker, literally. The very one that he's trying to stop people from talking about. God meets him on the road to his persecution of others. Which shows us this, that God will meet you anywhere, anytime, no matter who you are. God desire, that God will meet you on your journey. That there's no road that he won't meet you on to share his love for you. But, so if you find yourself on maybe the, the road of anger, where anger is driving everything you're doing, or insecurity, or addiction, or abuse, or ego, wherever, whatever road you find yourself on, God desires to interrupt your trip. To knock you off whatever horse you're choosing to ride on. Say, I've got a better way. I'm reminded growing up, um, there were many times where I was told I was called to ministry, and I'll be honest, I didn't want to do it. So I I found myself kind of running um, away from the church at points and away from from ministry and and trying to do anything else that I could. And I was like, I know better. I'm going to go to to school and get my business degree, and I I don't want to do this. And then there was one night where I was driving home, and I've got a little uh, ADD sometimes, and I had this gauge that would tell me how many miles to the gallon I was getting. And so um, out of boredom, I would floor it and watch it go down about 8 miles per gallon, and I'd let go, and it'd jump up to 99. And I, I kept pay- I was paying attention to this, and all of a sudden I didn't realize that the road made an S-curve. And I realized it, but it was about a hair too late, and there was a gravel shoulder, and my back wheels clipped that gravel shoulder, shot me across the road and this is the last thing I remember was being shot across the road in my in my Jeep uh, Cherokee with my seatbelt on and when I came to I was able to get out of the car and um, I called my roommate and we and I, and I asked him to come get me and he drove down the road and he said um, I don't I, I see you but I you're not you're gonna need to walk to the road and I'm like what are you talking about I'm right next to the road and he said no you're about 10 yards to 20 yards off the road so I walked up to the road he took me to the hospital we called to try to report the wreck only to realize um later that we had reported it to the wrong location because um I thought I was in Hattiesburg uh, but I'd apparently gotten into the county so I needed to call the sheriff's deputies but anyway by any assumption um I got a call the next morning from a sheriff's deputy and he said is this ryan mcgoo and i said it is and he said we need you to come meet us now um because we found your car and and so i went and i met them and they said that from their uh, analysis that they believe that i i rolled three times um clipped the top of a guard fence and my Jeep ended up upright. And their exact words were, and when we found your car with nobody in it, we started searching the surrounding field thinking that there's no way anybody walked away from this wreck. Now, I'd not seen my Jeep in the light of day, um, but I knew that I had blacked out in the front seat with my seatbelt on and come to in the back seat. Um and so when I went around in the corner and I saw what they were talking about, because the building there was a building in front of my Jeep, and so I rounded the corner and saw my Jeep and saw that the driver's side seat, front seat, the roof was collapsed all the way to the floorboard. And I went, oh, 
God, you've got my attention. God, you've obviously got a purpose. God, you've obviously got a claim on my life. What is it that you desire for me to do? God had knocked me off my high horse of ego and knowing what I wanted to do and said, no, I've got a purpose for you. And I wasn't willing to listen until it took something extreme like this. And I hope that it doesn't take something extreme like this for you. Because God, um, after he knocks Saul off of his high horse, Ask this question of Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, why are you persecuting me? The, the question that causes Saul's whole understanding of who God is, how God works, who God is calling him to be, and who is God turns Saul upside down and his life upside down. You see, Saul was a man on a mission, on his own mission, but God comes in, knocks him off of his high horse, and down a few pegs, and says, I've got something different. I've got something better. And this is the reminder that God had to humble me, and God had to humble Saul, and God may need to humble some of us, because God isn't worried about our titles, our accomplishment, our trophies. God is worried about our heart and, our, and what God is calling us to do. And some of the time, we, the reason we can't hear God's call is because we're too busy proclaiming our own wants. The reason that we don't go in the way that God calls us to is because we think our way is better. So God doesn't humble us to, to hurt us, but God will humble us to heal us, to make us whole, to make us realize that we are not in control, that we don't know better than God knows. To, to move us from thinking we win when we get our way, but we win when we submit to God, not to our pride. A.W. Tozer is quoted um, as saying that the meek man is not some mouse that is afflicted with this inferiority, but it's a moral life that he may be, in his moral life, he may be as bold as a lion, as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled by himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his life. He knows. That in himself he is nothing, but in God he is everything. This is his motto, that the world may never see him as God does, but he does not care. Because he is content to allow God to place his his own values on him. It's saying that, you know, he's, he's not worried about... This idea of what the world, how the world views him, and and Saul was so caught up in the titles and how the world viewed him that, that there's three things that Saul kind of teaches us here, and one is that we need to embrace being certain about our uncertainties. Saul had convinced himself that he knew everything, that he had learned everything there was to learn, that he knew what he was supposed to be doing, but. He's not some outlier that's just like, oh, I think I'm figuring it out. No, he was the the most intelligent. He was the most influential. He was the most, quote, unquote, religious. But he believed what he was doing was for God, but it was actually against God's call. 
He was certain about how God loved and worked, who God was, what God was doing. But it was flipped upside down when he was knocked off his high horse and he encountered Jesus. Because notice that he thinks he knows what God, who God is and what God is calling him to until he meets God. The best way to open yourself up to what God wants you to do is to be know, okay knowing that you don't know everything. And you don't know what you don't know. Because too often we find ourselves, we suppress, we push down curiosity and doubt and skepticism and, and those questions that we have that we don't know because we've somehow become to believe that, that certainty equates to faith. But authentic faith is, can be grown in the soil of doubt, skepticism, and curiosity if we allow it to. Because curiosity may have killed the cat, but it can certainly grow faith. Certainty is what kills faith. When we say, I already know everything. When we are certain of who God is and how God works, when something else happens, our faith can crumble. Certainty can become a a barrier for faith development because if you think you already know it all, then there is no need to grow. This doesn't mean don't hold tightly to those things of the resurrection and the love of God and others, but but it does mean to understand that God is greater than you will ever be able to understand, which leads us to the second thing, that God is bigger and better than you think. That Saul is persecuting those that he deems beyond the family of God, outside of the realm of God's love, but Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice he doesn't say them. Jesus is saying, when you mess with those people, when you mess with those people that you think are outside of my realm of love, when you persecute and oppress, hurt and exclude them, you do so to me. How we relate to one another is directly related to how we relate to God. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says, You are the body of Christ, and each one of you has a part. How we treat each other is how we treat the body of Christ. Paul's encounter changed his view forever, because before God could use Saul to save all people, he had to remind Saul of the sanctity of all people. We need to hear this. We need to know that we are called to serve and love all as the church. We and others are loved by God, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. So however or whoever you you view God to be, God is bigger and better. It, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from an author, Donald Miller, where he says, I can no more understand the totality of God than the blueberry my pancake can understand the totality of me. So maybe we need to realize that God is bigger and better than we will ever be able to wrap our minds around. Because Jesus is the image of God, we are not. Saul had over time created a God in his own image, so much so that when he encounters Jesus, he asks the question, Who are you, Lord? Because he doesn't even realize that 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 it is God before him. So what we hear here is that if you want to to encounter God, you don't need to look into a mirror, but you need to look at Jesus. 
part of our spiritual transformation is when we stop trying to contort God into a personal sized box, but we allow God to be God and we say, God, you don't fit into any box that I can put you in because we are not called to transform God into what we desire, but we are called to be transformed by God. Saul had been operating in with an image of God that he thought was correct, that looked like him, but nothing like Jesus. And this moment that he discovered God looks nothing like Saul, but a lot like Jesus changes everything. Because in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, he asks the question that changes everything. Not a question, the question. Because your answer to this question of who are you, Lord, it shapes everything about your faith. It all, everything about your faith flows through the how you answer that question. Your thoughts of biblical inerrancy, your your thoughts on on human sexuality, on abortion, on Democrat or Republican, on mask or no mask, while maybe important to you, the most important question is, who are you, Lord? Who is Jesus? I'm reminded of the bracelets that, that came out in the early 90s, the WWJD bracelets, when, when it asked um, this question of what would Jesus do? And I think if we were to ask these, this question honestly, it will direct everything. Our speech, our actions, our thoughts, how we vote, how we engage with one another. What would Jesus do if we allowed that question to be the way in which we interacted and acted with each other? What if what would Jesus do with the answer that shaped every other motion, every other thing that we did? What if you ask this honestly? Well, it may knock you off your high horse. It may change everything. So let's start. Let's start. God, humble us this day that we may know that we are not God, but you are. Amen and amen.